Hi, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Atlantic Council. My name is Jason Marzek, and I'm the director of the uh, Latin America Economic Growth Initiative uh, here at the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arsh Latin America Center. And on behalf of our center, I'd like to thank you all for joining us here today for this discussion and launch of our latest and I think quite timely publication, The New Argentina, Time to Double Down on the Energy Sector. Energy has been a pillar of the Adrian Arch Latin America Center's work since our founding in October 2013, uh, working both with the Ar Latin America Center as well as the, as we, as the, uh, as the Global Energy Center here at the Atlantic Council. And we've tracked Mexico's historic energy reforms as well as analysis of Venezuela's energy influence in the Caribbean and the larger energy trends in the region. For us, energy development is not only an opportunity to advance the region's prosperity, but also a way to enhance cooperation between the U.S. and, the, and, the, and the, our European partners. Our latest work on, energies, on Argentina's energy outlook comes at a very important time for the country. President Mauricio Macri's inauguration in December was both a political and an economic turning point for Argentina. In his first 100 days, he list, lifted capital controls, let the peso float, and began to roll back some of the signature policies of his predecessor that were inhibiting growth. Last week's preliminary deal with foreign creditors will pave the way for Argentina to access international markets and jumpstart its economy. Clearly, when President Obama lands in Buenos Aires in less than two weeks, he will see a very different Argentina. And one of the top areas for investment is the energy industry, as mentioned by Trade Secretary Miguel Brown when we hosted him here a few weeks ago. This is clear, especially with President Macri bringing well-respected technocrats into the energy ministry as he has done across ministries throughout his government. This moment brings an unprecedented opportunity to revamp the energy sector. By revising the regulatory framework and creating a better environment for doing business, building on steps taken in President Macri's short time already in office, Argentina could attract the foreign investment it needs to revitalize the industry. And as this next chapter unfolds, the question remains, what can the government in concert with energy companies and Argentina's provinces do to produce both upstream and downstream benefits. Christian Fulger, author of the policy brief we are launching today, has examined the steps the new government can take. His brief gives recommendations for the government, which we will hear about during the discussion. In addition to Christian, our expert panel discussion today is rounded up by Kurt Vogt. Uh, Kurt is the Managing Director, Head of Latin America Commercial Banking Coverage, Capital Financing at HSBC, clearly a, a lot to do every day with that title. And Olaf Rosnes. Olaf is the Energy Counselor at the Royal Norwegian Embassy and also former Assistant Director General at the Ministry of Energy of Norway. You can also feel free to live, live tweet the event using the hashtag ACNewArgentina and you can also tweet us using at ACLADAM if you have questions when we open up the discussion for questions. So to begin, it's my great pleasure to welcome Dan Pullman. Dan is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Centris Energy Corp Corporation and also the former Deputy Secretary of Energy of the United States. 
In addition to his post as a Chief Operating Officer of the Department of Energy, Dan has served as a principal at the Skokoff Group, as an attorney, and in various posts at the National Security Council. During his time at Energy, he chaired the U.S.-Argentina Dialogue, and I think Dan is most well known for being one of the most forward-thinking energy experts in this country, and we're delighted to have Dan today, who came just after arriving from, from Tokyo last night. So Dan, thank you for, for coming after, after that long trip. Following Dan's opening remarks, we will welcome the panelists to the stage for discussion today, moderated by my friend and colleague, Peter Schechter, the director of the Adrian Arst Latin America Center. So again, thank you all for joining us today, and it's my pleasure to welcome Dan Poman. Thank you. Thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, it's true I got off a plane uh, last night, Ambassador. Uh, from Tokyo, but when Peter wrote me about this session today and asked if I could come, uh, I absolutely could not say no. Uh, as a longtime student of Argentina, I have watched this country through many, many cycles. We all uh, know the story, but before I get to the story, I just have to say a word about the Atlantic Council. Uh, full disclosure, I am on the board, but what has happened to this organization in the 10 years uh, however many years it's been since Fred Kemp took over is nothing short of amazing. I used to work at 917th Street next door to what I would say was a much sleepier Atlantic Council, uh, which still, I think, had the dust of Jean Monnet was still in some of the conference rooms, uh, going back to its origins. Uh, and with Fred's leadership and having brought Adrian Arsht uh, in to support this fabulous center with uh, Peter's terrific leadership, it's really become I would say the cutting edge place for thinking progressively about challenges that we face across a whole array of issues and certainly Latin America. This is, a, this is the place to be and this morning, this is in particular the place to be. Uh, look, we all know the premise. Everyone's book starts the same. My book started the same. Argentina, 1930, one of the top 10 countries in per capita in, uh, income. You throw a seed, something grows. We know the story. We've seen the cycles. And I was fascinated by Argentina. I came into the subject matter through nuclear energy, which I'm still encumbered by as a professional responsibility. And when I went down to study the Argentine nuclear energy program, I studied it because it was unique. Everyone was studying India. Nobody was studying Argentina. Why was Argentina interesting? Because it started with a bizarre situation in which a refugee from Austria after the Second World War, Ronald Richter, managed to persuade Juan Perón that he had mastered nuclear fusion. This is the same nuclear fusion that even today we say is 30 years off, except they claimed, and I ask you to look in the New York Times front page of March 1951, you will see the claim that Argentina had mastered nuclear fusion. Of course, it wasn't so. It turned into a great embarrassment. Perón had actually granted sovereignty over a lake uh, in uh, Bariloche to, uh, to this gentleman to run these experiments, which was a complete uh, fraud, uh, unfortunately. But Argentina being Argentina, they reacted by saying, nunca mas, and uh, they put together a very, to this day, professional, independent nuclear program. So is that a metaphor here for the kind of pivot? I became interested in Argentina through that experience, and as I was finishing law school, the great transition to democracy was about to begin. The military had just had their disastrous episode in the South Atlantic, 
and the great moment of promise. Another December 10th, 1983 came in with Raul Alfonsin and another great era of hope. And I think they delivered fully on the promise of democracy at that time. But the economic promise was not executed to the same degree and they lurched uh, from crisis to crisis and then we had the final situation with President De La Rua and then we've had the subsequent many years uh, under the two Kirchner presidents. So now we arrive at another moment. And so I'm gonna give you just a very brief remarks because we wanna hear from our expert. But in my new world of business, we put the bottom line up front, bluff as we call it. And the bottom line up front in my judgment is this is a moment of unique opportunity where Argentina can pivot to a sustained and sustainable prosperous future. But challenges that remain are structural and real and will require a lot of effort, not least of which from the kind of people who are in this audience today to make it work. I'll just say a little bit about each aspect. Uh, the promise, we've all been watching the news. We've all seen President Macri speak, uh, seen his interviews at Davos. We've seen the uh, commitment delivered on to free up the currency, to settle with the outstanding creditors from the uh, distressed bonds. Uh, he's really not just talking the talk, he's walking the walk. And uh, I think the world is taking notice a very positive exchange he had with Vice President Biden where they called for a pragmatic relationship. Uh, I am personally very excited that the President of the United States will be going to Argentina. What a vote of confidence that says about the nature of this relationship. I can tell you because I believe that when I last visited Argentina, I was the highest official who had visited in quite some time. And uh, even then, Sub Rosa, beneath all the political challenges that were affecting the relationship at the high bilateral level, there was a tremendous amount of desire to get practical work done. We had a U.S.-Argentine energy dialogue. We were talking about smart grid. We were talking about civil nuclear. We were talking about unconventional gas. And that potential is still there, but now with a leadership that I think is in a much better place to make it work. Look at what shale gas has done in the United States. We have gone uh, from virtually nothing to 27 trillion cubic feet uh, of our, our natural gas production annually, of which 60% is now shale gas. And the one place in the hemisphere that has more natural gas in shale forms than the United States is Argentina, over 800 trillion cubic feet by the last estimation I have seen. Look at the unconventional oil. I think they are listed four, number four in the world, 27 billion barrels. And I did have the opportunity, and I was extremely impressed, to fly down to the Vaca Muerta and to see how they were taking a very professional uh, approach to this, uh, having smart rigs that could move from one spot to another, looking how to locally source their own sand for the drilling mud purposes so they would not have to import it, really taking a lot of smart moves. I understand. YPF is now going through transition, uh, and I understand that, but I think that the path has been set that Argentina can, and I hope will become, a major hydrocarbon source. 
the great work that they did in establishing contractual re relationships. Everyone knows the problems in Argentina have not been below ground, principally when it comes to the development of natural res resources. They've been the above ground uh, problems. And uh, the ability to attract Chevron down there uh, as, a, as a partner, very interesting. I actually talked to Andrew Liveris of Dow Chemical. You don't usually think about them as an upstream company, but Andrew Liveris saw the opportunity in Argentina, and interestingly, he comes from Australia, and he said he had a certain empathy as somebody from another end of the Antipodes uh, for Argentina, and so that's the kind of opportunity that you see where you're able to persuade a company that has not made an investment in that sector for a long period of time to become your partner. It's not confined to oil and gas. We were talking just before the session. We are in a unique moment, I think, globally, where we have a renewed consensus in favor of taking serious steps to curtail climate change. And there's interesting uh, legislation now that will pivot Argentina increasingly toward renewable energy resources. Uh, they have a very modest base from which to start, but they, there too, as in many other areas, have plenty of natural resources, and the question is going to be whether they can execute. I have to say a word about nuclear, which is uh, an area I've spent so much of my career. Argentina remains a highly respected member of the international community in all aspects of nuclear, including diplomatic. Uh, I will tell you that when I was doing the negotiations in 2009 with Iran, to replace the Tehran research reactor, highly enriched uranium fuel, with a safer, lower enrichment level, we talked to the Argentine Commission to see if they could help us out. That was one of the few places in the world that had the technology. I have visited Ezeiza, I've been down to Bariloche, I've been to the reactors at Atucha and Embalse. Again, absolutely world class. And at a time when we're looking increasingly at deploying nuclear energy as a carbon-free form, uh, Argentina, I think, is well positioned, well positioned to be very successful moving ahead. Uh, that's all on the positive side, but let's not underestimate the challenges. Inflation is high. The deficit has now, uh, from 2005, I think we had a 2% surplus. We're now at a 5% deficit, 7% deficit. Uh, the challenges are going to continue. Uh, the same political challenges that have been present the whole time of the Argentine history that I've been watching with the strong institutions that don't necessarily all work together in an effective democratic manner, those institutional challenges are going to have to continue to be met and, and ultimately overcome. Uh, it has been attempted. I think Alfonsin got part of the way there. De La Rua was not able to carry it to the next step as one had hoped. But I think that Macri, with the mandate that he has, if he can start delivering results, has a better chance than I've seen in, in my lifetime. I would say this is, this is the best chance, I'd say, since at least 1983 to really see this thing pivot and sustain in a positive direction. That's where this paper comes in. I wish I could stay to hear the discussion and participate, uh, but we have to be analytically rigorous in recognizing both the opportunities and the challenges. And honestly, this is something where people talk a lot about public and private partnerships, but that's not gonna do it by itself. People are gonna have to vote with their feet. I think, uh, again, if you look at the uh, remarks of the president uh, and the new finance minister, Pratt Gay, who I, I assume may be the son of the grandson of the gentleman who I used to know here in Washington who was the ambassador to the OAS, uh, was um, uh, you know 
very forward-leaning uh, and I think very promising, but they need interlocutors who will deal with them in good faith. They need the continued investment from people uh, to develop the resources and the opportunities. They're going to need, I think, support from the academic community and helping to create a policy environment that will be supportive from the business community and helping to develop these uh, opportunities and from both uh, the United States government uh, and the Argentine government to really put this effort to the test in a way that produces the results that everyone here hopes and prays that Argentina will realize. I'm going to end on a very optimistic note because even though I want to give a very balanced bottom line up front, I am optimistic. A few weeks before the election, I had the opportunity to have a dinner here in Washington with our ambassador, Ambassador Mamet, and a group of visiting Argentine business leaders. Uh, you could feel the excitement in the air. It was like a chained beast that was ready to be let loose. Everyone is expecting the change that has subsequently occurred. And I think I detected from our Argentine interlocutors a genuine enthusiasm and a readiness to roll up their sleeves, get started on building a new Argentina. And with the help of uh, the people in this room and the Atlantic Council, I have every confidence that they will succeed, that Argentina will succeed, and that we will all live to see a greater prosperity, greater democracy, greater partnership between the United States and Argentina in the years ahead. And I wish you every success with this conference. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. A word of thanks to Dan Poneman for uh, coming and talking to us today. He got off the plane from Japan, as Jason said, and he's got a meeting in 10 minutes. And it's so refreshing and wonderful to hear a US official that is so knowledgeable about, uh, about Argentina. I want to reiterate Jason's welcome. I'm Peter Schechter. I'm the director of the Adrian Arsch Latin America Center. And I also want to thank Dick Morningstar, Ambassador Morningstar, for being here with us this morning. He's, he's the director of the Global Energy Center here and uh, it's great to do things together. Uh, Argentina is a fundamental country in Latin America. Its size, its history, its geography, its economy makes it one of the most important countries in the region. And today, with the new government of President Macri, it is also a potent, potent potential symbol of change in Latin America. And if that change succeeds, if that change happens, one of the most important engines, drivers of that change is going to be the energy sector. Done correctly, and I'm going to come back to this small phrase, done correctly, changes in energy are going to spur manufacturing, industrial output, foreign direct investment. So the question is how to do it correctly. And I'm really glad that we have a panel here who's going to be able to answer how to do it correctly. So from Argentina and its energy sector, we have Cristian Folgar, the author of our brief. Um, Cristian served twice as the Undersecretary of Fuels in Argentina, a university professor, a consultant for numerous countries. 
talking to us about best practices around the world. We have Olaf Rosnes. Uh, Olaf was Assistant Director General in the Norwegian Ministry of Petroleum and Energy in the Oil and Gas Department. And we're lucky because he now lives in Washington as the Energy Counselor at the Embassy here. But we're really delighted, Olaf, that you could be here today because as we explore lessons for Argentina, there is no doubt that everybody always looks to Norway as the Mexican energy reform did as sort of the best practice to look at around the world. And no conversation about Argentina, a country like Argentina, can be complete without a conversation about access to capital. And so therefore, thank you, Kurt, very, very much for coming down last night from New York. Kurt Vogt is the Managing Director, the Head of Latin American Commercial Banking at HSBC, and has had long roles in banking, uh, covering all the countries in Latin America. Thank you all for coming. Uh, a word to you, I want to say publicly what I said to my panelists before. I like uh, informal panels. Please jump in. Please disagree with each other. You don't need me to ask you whether you agree or not. And I think that this panel really um, is exemplary of what we try to do here at the Atlantic Council because we try to think of Latin America very much in the global context. And so we have a panel here that really mixes up experiences from the private sector, from the public sector, and from other countries around the world. So Christian, I want to start with you. Um, your policy brief outlines the current state of Argentina's energy matrix. It provides really clear recommendations about what needs to be done over the next years to reinvigorate the energy center. Could you just summarize for us what lessons of the past years need to be learned so that it can be applied in the coming years and so that energy really can be this transformative driver uh, in Argentina's economy? Uh, first of all, thank you for the invitation to, to be here today. Please be kind with me because English is my second language. So I have some Latin people here with me in the panel, so you can help me with my English. Um, the problems that Argentina right now is facing in the energy sector are not because of a lack of resources, but of a lack of investment. Uh, as Dan said recently, we have one of the largest potential undiscovered resources in shale oil or shale gas. We have a lot of resources in renewable energies. We have a lot of potential resources in renewable energy. But during the last 10 years, 12 years, the investment in the energy sector was kind of, I would say, freeze due to some regulatory decisions that was taken by the former administration. Let me do in a little brief history of where we are now and where we came from. During the 90s, Argentina used to be a net exporter of energy. Our um, external energy balance was positive. By those days, during the what we call the convertibility regime, prices in, nominated in US dollars were aligned with the international prices, both crude oil with international prices and natural gas with the regional prices. After uh, the crisis of 2001, what we call the convertibility crisis, all the energy prices were specified. So they reduced to a third. 
nominated in, in dollar terms. By the, this time, by that time, the, the Argentine government decided to establish a, what we call a recovery path. The goal by those days was to recover the, the prices that we used to have during the 90s. But in, by the end of 2006, by or the beginning of 2007, the federal government decided not to continue with this policy, and they almost freezed all energy prices in Argentina. The difference between the actual prices that were paid by the, by the consumers was covered by subsidies by the government. Just to give you an idea, in 2007, the federal government used to have a surplus of 3% of the GDP. Right now we have a deficit of 7% of the GDP. Most of the change between the surplus and the deficit is due to the energy subsidies because they grew a lot over the time. In 2010-2009, we lost our energy self-sufficiency status. Right now, our external energy balance is around a deficit of $6.5 billion. We used to have in 2003 a surplus of 4.8, let's say, $5 billion of, of surplus. Now we are in, in $6 billion of deficit. And the only way that Argentina can reverse this situation is attracting foreign investment. In 2012, the, the Congress approved the expropriation of the majority of the shares of YPF. Now YPF is again a company run by the federal government, but YPF is, a, is the most important company in Argentina, but it's a tiny company in terms of the energy sector. Market capitalization of YPF this morning is less than $7 billion. Uh, so a company with $7 million is not going to be able to develop the huge resources that we have in Argentina. Or if we want to do it through YPF, we are going to, to take a lot of time to do that. My sons or my grandsons are going to see the developments of YPF if we want to do everything through YPF. So the, the, the best idea is to open up as much as we can the opportunity for private investors to help YPF to develop all our undeveloped energy resources. So this, this leads me, Kurt, to ask you the question. I mean, I think it's, it's been very starkly put by Christian. I mean, the, it is to make this energy sector really the driver of economic growth is going to require foreign investment. Where is, tell us where the market is. Tell us what people think. I mean, where is Argentina in terms of the ability to attract significant capital uh, to, to the energy sector. <clears throat> yeah, I think, and thank you again for, for the invitation. Um, I think it is important to, to, to look back and what the, what the history is there as well. I mean, you, you, you had a major default in 2001 of, uh, of the foreign debt of Argentina after, after building up uh, a, a stock of debt that, uh, that was unsustainable at that point. And, um, and there was a renegotiation of the, of the debt, but there, there are a certain uh, group of, uh, of investors that did not accept the exchange of the old debt for, 
for, for a discounted debt. Those holdouts, they call them the holdouts. Others call them as, the vulture as funds. <laughs> um, they, they, they have been in that status for, for, for all this time. And there has been a back and forth uh, uh, trying to, to, to solve this problem, and it has not been solved. And, and the, the current government inherited that situation. And one of the, 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 the important steps that the government is, is, is looking for is to, to put this problem to bed. And, um, and I mean, they, they assumed in December last year. The 10th, December the 10th. December 10th last year. And they have advanced uh, very quickly in this, in this, uh, in this task. And, and, and I think uh, the government has sent very strong signals uh, of what its policies are, are going to be and, and, and the liberalization of, of, uh, of foreign exchange controls. And, and these, are, these are signals that, that, as an investor, everybody would, would perceive, okay, here, something's positive is, is, is happening here. Um, they started the, the, the negotiations beginning of, of, of February. They already got, they got a few in, in initial uh, uh, funds uh, to, to accept new terms. Um, and very recently, the, 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 the largest part of the, of the of the of the funds that that, that were still pending, uh, accepted an offer. Uh, this offer needs to be uh, needs to be concluded, and there are some technical issues that need to be that need to be solved. But uh, and uh, and probably by 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 April 15th, uh, around that date, uh, if everything goes right, they can they can they can get to that point. So a lot of technicalities, but the the, the point here is once that happens. Uh, that sends a very strong signal to the market uh, that that Argentina then can get out of its default, and 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 uh, and that sends a or it gives the ability of the of 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 the government mo most probably to access the capital markets, and this whole thing, at the end of the day, allows a a country that has a after all these years a lower debt to GDP ratio to access the markets. And um, if the government can access the market, then you can also have banks, you have ECAs, multilaterals, all the financial systems starting to look at Argentina with, a different, uh, with, with, with different eyes. Obviously, this will take time. I mean, it, 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 it's not, not uh, from one day to the other, but it is a very big, very good, very big step. And, and having access to the, to, the, to the market then provides financing and also sends a strong message also to companies and, and, and to investors to look at foreign direct investment. So, so you, you reflect Secretary Panaman's cautious optimism, but you see the real, the, re, the line in the sand as being, being able to make a deal with the holdouts. Yes, it looks, it looks like that. And, 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 uh, and when you play that out, you will see that that uh, okay that there goes w one good news feeds into the next good news and and uh, and again the financial markets are like that uh, when 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 things good uh, look good then people see an investment opportunity right. and uh, and and as that happens uh, you can get into a virtual cycle where 
where the cost of capital comes, comes down. I mean, the highest cost of capital is no capital. Right. And when you start uh, getting access to some capital, that is a, that is a good a good thing. And there are already some green shots coming out. Uh, this week, uh, Provincia de Buenos Aires issued a, a bond uh, for $1.25 billion. And it was the largest bond that they have issued in, in a long time. And um, Place it into context, but in, in terms of world uh, bond issues? Well, $1.5 billion is one point, well, <laughs> $1.2 billion is a big number. No? Okay. And it's, it's, it's a it's uh, it's accessing the, uh, accessing the market, um, and that is that is that is uh, that is a signal that that uh, investors are taking notice. Great, Olaf. Let me bring you into discussion because energy activities have been so crucial for Norway's financial growth, economic growth. It has added more than a trillion dollars to the country's GDP, represented about 23 percent of the overall GDP. Uh, by 2012. T tell us from a big picture perspective, how did Norway use its significant resources to power the country's prosperity? Uh, first of all, thank you, Peter, for, for having me here. Uh, I think I, I need to start with sort of some history about, uh, about the Norwegian oil and gas activities. And uh, it's now more than 50 years since we started the oil and gas activities in, uh, in Norway. We had the first licensing round in uh, 1965. And uh, a key to the development of the Norwegian oil and gas industry was that we opened up the, uh, the Norwegian shelf to international oil companies. We had in Exxon, we had in Mobile, Shell, BP, all the major companies, they came to Norway uh, because we did not know anything about oil when we discovered oil, so we needed their competence and we did not have the, uh, the funds or the financial funds to invest in the oil and gas activities, so we needed the investments. So that was a starting point that we started to invite in, in uh, the companies. And in uh, 1969, we did the first discovery, 1971, first field in production, and then it's been, been adding on. Um, uh, at the beginning, we, we, had, we were a de developed country. We had a uh, um, population edu well educated. We had some industry, and particularly the maritime industry, which is, of course, important when you're going offshore for, uh, for oil and gas activities. So that was a, was a good start. And we had experience from the hydropower uh, power industry system, developing hydropower in Norway for the whole uh, 20th century. So we had, had some regulations from that sector that we can use into the oil and gas, uh, gas sector. And the, the uh, sort of objective, main objective for the Norwegian government was to, uh, to um, make this resource sort of the benefit the Norwegian population, have a maximum value creation out of, of the sector. Of course, with a high government take, but a fair share to the, uh, the companies going into Norway. So this was sort of the basic thing. I think there are some sort of key elements to the, to the story that we would like to, to just, just sum up. And the first one is that we've always been thinking in a sort of a, how to use the markets and, and the use the market forces to, to achieve our goals. Of course, it's a mix of, it's, it's a huge state part in the oil and gas sector, but we are using the market forces to, to achieve our goals to, to, to maximize the, uh, the value creation from the sector. So competition, international companies coming in is sort of a key to, to, to the success, I think, and have a 
diversified sort of portfolio of international companies. You have to have the big majors, you can have some utility companies, uh, you have smaller companies specialized in exploration, specialized in, in uh, late, uh, late life development of fields. So it's a mix of companies. We had a clear division of responsibility between the companies and, and the regulators to make that sort of clear. The regulators, we regulate the industry, the companies, they follow their commercial uh, sort of interest in, in the industry. Uh, the government tax system, uh, of course, important. We have a net profit tax, we have a direct state ownership, and we have dividend from Statoil, which are sort of the main uh, components of, of the system. And this has been a fairly stable system throughout sort of these 50 years. There have been adjustments to the system, but the basic system has been there uh, for all these years. And that's, that has been, I think, very important that the companies, they know what they are going into. So that is, it's uh, no, no surprises in, in, in the system. Uh, and as all, often mentioned, we, we have developed a sovereign wealth fund uh, based on the income from the, uh, the oil and gas sector. That has been an important part of this. The one, one thing about this wealth fund is to, to uh, share sort of the income, the profits from the oil and gas sector with future generations. The other part of this is to uh, avoid bringing too much uh, money or uh, stimulate the Norwegian economy too much. So the Sovereign Wealth Fund is a way to keep this money outside the economy and not, not uh, then destroying the Norwegian economy. So that's been an important part of it. And I think the last point is that we have a strong emphasis on developing a Norwegian oil and gas industry. So that's, was, that's one of the reasons why we uh, established Statoil. And we have established other oil companies, and that we are uh, sort of uh, have developed the supply and service industry in Norway to, to sort of make more more benefit out of the uh, of the uh, resources. Well, I'm going to I'm going to come back to you to talk a little bit about how local communities benefit. Mm -hmm. Christian, this is a very peculiar Argentine thing that it, it, in which the resources are really owned by the provinces. And of course that creates some tension between national governments and the uh, national government and the provinces. Your paper sort of really touches on that and tries to point a way forward. Tell us a little bit about what is what does that tension mean and how can how have you tried to find a way to resolve the tension between national government in terms of le both legal frameworks, but how can how can the financial deal be good for everybody? Okay. In in 1994, Argentina establishes in its constitution that the natural resources belongs to the provinces. In in the past, natural resources belong, especially hydrocarbons, belongs to the federal state. That was a big change in, in the dynamic of the of the sector. Right now we have the provinces that they own the resources and we have the federal government that holds 51% of the shares of YPF. So we have the province that they, they have the natural incentive to try to foster the production of hydrocarbons no matter if the, the, the production is in hands of YPF or other companies. YPF naturally wants to promote its activities and of course YPF wants to, to compete against other companies and, and, and to grow as fast as they can. And the federal government has mixed, mixed uh, objectives because for one hand it's responsible for 
the energy policy, but in the other hand, is the shareholder of YPF. The former administration set the, the, the objective in trying to foster as much as they, they could YPF because they took the political decision to expropriate uh, the, the shares that, that used to have uh, Repsol at YPF. Right. So the former administration want, wanted to have a sound and very strong YPF. And that created a lot of tension with the provinces because in 2014, for instance, we introduced some changes into the hydrocarbons law. But all those changes were thought to benefit YPF, not the energy sector. That's why, for instance, from 2014 until now, we, we haven't had much investment in the, in the sector, except for the agreements that YPF made with some, some international investors. So the idea, I mean, the new administration have an opportunity to to change the, the dynamic of the sector. Macri's administration doesn't have the, the need to explain why YPF was expropriated because they inherit this decision. But Macri's administration has the responsibility to foster activities in the overall energy sector. So right now, probably is the time to have provinces, YPF, and the federal government collaborating between each other to try to promote investment and not to compete. To, in the last year, for instance, we have a lot of examples where when YPF compete against the provinces because YPF want to uh, have activities in the provinces and the activities probably is, doesn't want IPFD or didn't want IPFD there. So YPF, sorry, there. So, Macri administration has the, the opportunity to, to change the dynamic. And if I have to define it in, in a few words, YPF must uh, collaborate with the provinces and not compete against the provinces. So, Olaf, coming back to you and Norway's experience, the, I mean, I think Christian has just described well this lingering tension between YPF. And, and the provinces. How, how did Norway develop re the, the resources while at the same time making sure the local stakeholders, I mean, I realize that you don't have the same issue, the province, the, the resources are not owned by your provinces, but by the state government, but how did, how did Norway balance local constituencies and stakeholders with national needs? Yeah, that, that's true, that's, it's, it's very different in Norway that we don't, we don't have these layers with the provinces uh, owning, owning resources. It's the Norwegian state that owns the resources and all the oil and gas resources are offshore. So that makes it, uh, that makes it easier. Um, but what we've done is, is because uh, of course these uh, communities and mainly these other coastal communities, they are closer to the, these, uh, these uh, resources and it's their, their interest of course to have something more out of the resources than just uh, uh, seeing these, uh, the profits going to the, to the state. And uh, of course the, the system is that uh, the revenues go, so there are no revenues going directly to these communities. Um, but then again, they are closer to the activities and by that they of course will have more of the activities. So the supply industry, all companies, they are located on the, on the coast, coastline. So that is a benefit to these communities. But there has also been a policy 
to uh, to uh, make sure that the sort of the activities from the oil and gas activities is beneficial to the whole country. So there has been a pause. For instance, if if we just we're thinking like sort of the most efficient model here to to uh, the low cost way of uh, of uh, developing the oil and gas sector. We might have one or two or three locations in Norway. We have all the industry there and uh, the companies, and you you serve the the, the the activities from those places. But we have had a different approach. That we would like to see that there are several several cities along the coastline that have these uh, sort of benefits from the oil and gas sector. So we we might have eight instead of three locations where, where we sort of have these uh, the supply industry supply uh, the basis the harbors for uh, for the uh, for the industry so that's been an important part to to make sure that these local communities uh, they can take part in the oil and gas activity and have the benefits because of course they have some of the risks as well being closer to the uh, to the oil and gas activities so i think that's the way we do it and and it's um, uh, more formally when we have a, a, a oil and gas field development, we have a plan for development of operation and that plan has to be approved by the, the by parliament or by the government. And in that process we have the environmental impact assessment and a part of that is of course the public hearing of a program, a public hearing of the impact assessment and into that process we get all the sort of input from the local communities and that is taken into the, uh, to the, to the company's planning and they have to sort of adjust their plans accordingly if, if this is of course reasonably and then ultimately there will be a political debate around these things and uh, there might be sort of changes to a development plan and in particular it, this could be had something with the location of for instance an office or this uh, the, uh, the supply uh, the base for the for the industry that that has been done but in general it's it's not very sort of large changes coming from the from the political um, uh, environment to to these uh, these changes but this is a way of sort of Distributing the uh, the uh, the benefits of the uh, oil and gas uh, activities. It's very helpful. Yeah. So no, no, nobody can have a discussion about energy these days without talking about the low price environment that that we're in. Um, and I want want to move our our conversation a little bit in that direction. Let me start with you, Kurt. The the how do you see? I mean, there's clearly you know as you described renewed interest in Argentina. Green shoots already appearing. Bond uh, the bond issuing by the province of Buenos Aires successful, yet there is, we are facing a very difficult international climate in terms of, in terms of prices. How is that going to affect the, uh, the interest of international capital in investing in the energy? Right, I think, I think here uh, at the end, uh, all oil companies look at the whole world and see where the opportunities are. And, um, and the oil price uh, that we have is is a is a is a reality uh, today, and clearly it affects the 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 interest in in general globally in in in, in terms of where to invest uh, in 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 the in the oil sector. Um, at the same time, I mean, in, in you, you you described how the the, the 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 government of Argentina has not validated the international uh, price for for local uh, uh, oil. And I mean, that in a way, uh, I would assume, would be, would be attractive uh, in, in, in the sense that for, for oil companies. But 
that in itself is, 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 is probably not, not enough. If you have, um, if you look at the, at the, at the whole uh, Argentina uh, resource that is available, the unconventional resource, for instance, that is huge, and uh, it was mentioned a while ago in terms of, uh, is, is one of the resources, I mean, like, how did the U.S. develop this and, 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 and the potential of development uh, of that resource in Argentina is, is, is very interesting. Uh, a lot of the oil companies in Argentina, uh, the bigger ones are already there. So they probably have some investment, uh, investment plans that they can dust off and look at and say, okay, this is, this is an opportunity now with, with with the with with the new the, the, the new government and the new um, the new investment climate, look at it and 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 take their decision based on on the economics and say okay today I have the local price I have the international price and they do their own uh, projections of what is going to happen to the international price and 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 and, and decide or not to 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 make a specific investment. But in general, I would say it's 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 a it's within the, the the difficulty of having a low a low international price. It is an interesting opportunity to look at. So, Christian, you're, you you've talked about prices and the the divergence between the internal price in Argentina and the international price, and you've made some recommendations. So, how how can the government maneuver in these various price climates? The local price versus versus the there are two different situations in Argentina, one for crude oil and another one for natural gas. In crude oil, probably, we are paying internally the highest price of crude oil in, in the world because internally, producers are selling the lightest crude oil at 70, sorry, $67 per barrel. In, in which country you, you, you find today this, this price for a producer. That means that the customers in Argentina are paying higher, very high prices of uh, gasolines at the gas station. Uh, in terms of gallons, our gasoline in Argentina costs these days kind of $4 per, per gallon. Uh, I don't know how much it is in, in the state, but probably it's kind of a third of that or, or less. Uh, this is a wealth transference from the customers to the companies, the cost for the society, not, not for the federal government, because we, 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 who are paying the, the, the bill at the gas station, the, 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 the end user, the, the cost for the economy is around $3 three billion, three, three billion per year. But the problem with that price is today companies are, are collecting let's say $60 per barrel, but what's going to happen tomorrow? So the government should decide, the new government should decide where they want to go. Or we are still uh, paying high prices for, for crude oil during, let's say, five years, four years, six years, or we're going to go, or we go to the international prices because right now we're kind of in the middle. We are paying the cost, but we are not receiving the benefits because companies, the, produ the producers, when, when they forecast the investment, they, they, they think that they are going to get paid for the new oil, the international price. So 
they, they cash the oil at, uh, at $60, but they, 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 they foreseen their investment at $30. So we're in the worst situation. So one, one, of, one, one of the things that the government should do is to decide a rule. Where are we going to go? We're going to international prices or we're going to set higher prices than international during X period of time. In natural gas, the situation probably is, is better. Uh, we don't have exactly an international price for natural gas. We have a regional price for, for natural gas. The government, the government has already announced that the, the goal is to, to have an average wellhead price for natural gas at around $5 per million of EGOs, which is a good price for, for natural gas. Right now, Argentina is importing natural gas from Bolivia at around $4. We have two LNG terminals that we are importing through them, uh, LNG at a final cost of $7 per million of ETUs. So uh, a price of around $5, $5.5 per million of ETUs is going to be a good price for, for the internal market. Again, the question, what's the problem if the price is kind of good? Because a greater part of the bill right now is paid by the government through federal subsidies. So producers are collecting part of the price from the end users and the greater part from the government. But the government has a huge fiscal imbalance and we have a problem with inflation. So everyone knows that the, the expenditure of the government should, should be reducing in the next year. So what the government has to do is to increase the part of the bill that is paid by the demand, not by the federal government. So this is what the, uh, the government already said that they are going to do. They haven't started yet with natural gas. Probably during April, they will start to do so. The, the, the final objective is to have a this five or let's say five, five point five uh, average uh, the dollars per five dollars per million of BTU in average be paid by the uh, by the end users by the demand, and that's going to be the, the quality change because it's not the same for a company receiving some part of the price from from the end users and another part for the government than having the whole bill be paid by the, by the end user. This is going to be a, a very huge uh, change in, in, in prices. Since Argentina has an energy matrix that, is, that relies a lot on, on natural gas, 50% of our energy matrix relies on natural gas, we can convert natural gas as the driver of the production of hydrocarbons in Argentina. So probably what we can do in the future is let oil prices uh, match with international and set a sound price for natural gas and, and be natural gas the, the driver of the industry, at least at the upstream. Well, if, what, is, what has been Statoil's experience in the last 18, 24 months with low, in, in the low price environment? That we live in. How have they adjusted? I think it's the same as for all uh, all companies. It's uh, it's tough uh, with uh, prices uh, falling that much. 
So this is, uh, it's, uh, of course, a tough situation for Statoil, and it's a tough situation for the oil and gas industry in Norway in general, with uh, lower investments uh, and uh, layoffs in the industry and uh, companies going bankrupt. So this is, uh, this is, uh, these are tough, tough times. Um, but I, I went to to Sierra Week uh, a couple of weeks ago, and my impression was so that the industry thinks this is a it's a cyclical industry, and it will go up again. And uh, and uh, most of the sort of industry and, and Statoil as well, they are preparing for for higher prices, not as they've seen uh, in 2014 and 13, but for higher prices and sort of adjusting their organizations to be there and be ready for the upturn to start investing again when the, uh, when the prices are coming back. So I think that's, that's what to do. And in Statoil, there's a lot of efforts on, on reducing the costs. And there have been some uh, developments on the Norwegian shelf where they had a balanced price of 80 US dollar per barrel in 2014. And now they've worked with that project. Uh, and it's now down to 45 US dollars as a balance price. So that is a pretty, pretty good, uh, good achievements, achievement. And that is based on, of course, the supply industry and the situation there with lower, lower prices. But it's also cutting costs internally, making projects more efficient uh, in, uh, in, in these uh, this times. So that's, I think that's, that's the situation in, in, uh, in Statoil. Time is running out on me as, as a, a questioner. I want to open it up to the audience. But uh, w one last subject that has to be talked about is YPF. Uh, in the last few days, the president of YPF resigned. Um, and, you know, there's been, there's been, it's just a, it's, it is this fundamentally important player in Argentina. So, Christian, just quickly as, as we try to, Wind up. You, you have also. I've heard you talk about transparency in YPF and how important that is. And to tell us a little bit about where you see YPF having to go if it's going to be really a fundamentally important part of the of the energy matrix in Argentina. Well, probably if you have heard in the news that the chairman of the board and the CEO of YPF is resigning, the government decide to 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 nominate a new chairman, which is going to be different from the CEO of the company. Right now, Miguel Galucho holds both positions. The, the government, it's not official yet, but the government has, has already nominated a person who is already a member of the board to be the chairman. This person is uh, Miguel Gutierrez. He's, uh, his background is more financial markets. He used to be the CEO of a telco company in, in Argentina. So the idea probably is going to be that the, that the chairman of the, goal, the, of the board is going to be a financial-oriented person. Probably his task is going to be to, to structure how YPS will finance its activities. And the CEO, who will know right now the name of who is going to be, probably is going to be a, a person oriented to, to run the company on, on, a, on a daily basis. Um, YPF, uh, in, in terms of transparency, it, it has a very big challenge in the future. You will probably know the, the most important agreement that uh, uh, set YPF on a private investor was with Chevron, right after the expropriation of, of, of the shares of Repsol. But YPF decided to keep confidential the, the, the whole contract. 
the Supreme, the Supreme Court of Argentina ruled uh, last year, by the end of last year, that uh, that was a, a wrong decision, that uh, the contract should be disclosed to, to, to the people, because in fact the citizens owns 51% of the shares. And that probably is the, the very weird political situation for, for Miguel Galucho, who is resigning, because uh, he represents the shares of the state, of the federal state, but the Supreme Court said that he, he should have disclosed the, 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 the contract to the, to the society. And there I think that this is the main reason why Galucho is resigning, because uh, in fact, prior to the, to the elections, Macri announced that he, 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 he was comfortable with Galucho, and probably Galucho will, will be in his, his position during his, his presidency. But, well, the, the political situation right now is different after the ruling of the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I think that from, from a professional point of view, uh, nothing is going to change in, in YPF. Probably the names are going to be different. But the, the way that, that, that YPF uh, is doing things from a professional point of view is going to be the same. We all expect that, as I said before, uh, YPS should change its focus. Uh, the focus shouldn't be uh, all in favor of YPF, or, uh, and the focus should be all in favor of the energy sector, where YPF is one player, probably a very important player, because it is a state-owned company. I don't know if this was the question. Yeah, yeah, oh. no, absolutely. You know, I can't help but, as, as Christian was talking, I was thinking, you know, the lack of transparency of YPF not announcing the deals was very similar to a lot of comments about lack of transparency of economic details that was coming out of the government in, in the past. I mean, Macri has made, as you, as you said, some really interesting and positive first three months in terms of uh, what he's done uh, and the measures that he's taken. Yet, inflation is soaring to 40%. Uh, since the currency devaluation and the reduction in taxes. So do you think Mark is going to be able to sustain this pace of change? Uh, and, you know, particularly for a, for a country which depends so much on, on government mechanisms to... Yeah, I mean, uh, at the end, like, like in, in, in any situation, uh, you come in and you have some political capital and you, you start spending it and you, you have to spend it in a... In a, in a wise way, and you have to move swiftly. You know? So I think on, on, on one hand, I mean, the liberalization of the, of the, of the exchange, uh, of the foreign exchange, uh, obviously brings about a, a, a spike in inflation. Um, at the same time, what, what, what you need to do is, is, is then to control that inflation and eventually bring it, bring it down over, over time. And that requires to spend some of your political capital in, in negotiating the, the, the salaries and things like that. And, 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 but while, while you do that, uh, if you are able to get access to the capital markets, then you, you get uh, additional breathing space to, to, to get this through. So, so I guess that's what I, what I perceive here, no? that you're, you're, you're you're, you, you, you have a, 
a time to do this, and 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 you move you move at a certain pace, and um, and as the as 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 you see some positive uh, uh, results from the access to capital coming, that gives you that gives you some ammunition to actually deal with the problems. No, uh, so so we'll see. It is. Uh, uh, we, we 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 think. I mean, this is this is this is this is optimistic. No, I mean, if, when, if you want to take an optimistic po uh, point of view, you see, you have you have a good shot of of of, of managing the situation. Excellent. Let me open it up to questions from the audience. I saw Ambassador Morningstar pointing at me before, so if you can wait for a microphone, it's coming your way. Uh, I'd like to ask uh, some maybe more specific questions about foreign investment uh, in the energy market. Uh, with all the good things that have been happening uh, since the change in government, I would guess there still would be a significant perceived political risk given, uh, given the history uh, of what's happened in Argentina. And so the question I would have is what recent activity have you seen from foreign companies, uh, particularly since the uh, uh, change in administration? And then the second question is, what will be Argentina's policy towards exports, which was very questionable during the Kirchner regime at best? And I understand that in most important is the development of the domestic market, given Argentina being an energy importer. But it would seem to me that would not be enough to attract investment, that there has to be some, view, some feeling that there's going to be significant export potential. And I would ask about that. Kurt, do you want to? No, I, I, I think in terms of investment, I, I will leave it here for you. Uh, Since the Macri's administration is a very new administration, they have him in their charges. I don't know, for 90 days, less than 90 days. There haven't been any announced yet about new, new investments. Um, regarding the second part of the question about the exports, um, yes, you, you are right. If you compare the potential resources that Argentina has in hydrocarbons and which is our demand or our potential demand in the future, uh, we if we succeed developing shale oil or shale gas, we might export it because Argentine market is not going to be enough to develop all the resources. The only way that we have to develop all the resources is to think not only to add value to, to the oil or to the natural gas internally, but exporting it. The, the good thing is that the infrastructure to export is in place. We have several pipelines that connect Argentina with uh, Chile, with uh, Uruguay. We have uh, power lines, electric power lines that connect Argentina with Brazil. The point is, if we succeed as a country to attract investments and this investment develop the resources, we can think in exporting. Uh, uh, speaking today uh, of Argentina being Again, a net exporter of energy is kind of uh, science fiction because right now we are importing uh, natural gas and we are importing also electricity from Uruguay or, or Brazil. But 
if you take in account the amount of resources that Argentina has, if we succeed de developing them, we must export. Yeah. I, I would add, I mean, when you, when you look at comparative advantages, no? I mean, I, there is the resource on the energy side, and there's also the, 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 the resource on, on food production. And, and, and there, uh, the exports of, 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 uh, uh, of, of uh, food commodities, I mean, at the end of the day, had been, had been um, were not liberalized, and, and, and you had retention on exports. I mean, if that, if that is, is, is liberalized, you have you have two engines eventually. I mean, as you say, <laughs> science fiction maybe, but eventually if you have the oil sector generating effects and you have, and you have the, the agricultural sector generating effects, then the country has the, the, the foreign exchange to actually modernize itself and invest in, 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 in lasting growth. No? So these, are the, these could be two, two very, very important engines to, to turn around. Gentleman over there. Can you wait for a microphone, please? Oh, sure. Thank you. Hi, uh, I'm Mulvan Mali. Uh, I'm director of Vermont Energy Investment Corporation and also fellow of Atlantic Council's uh, Environmental Energy Policy Program. And we were on a study tour in Texas a couple of weeks ago as part of the Atlantic Council's program. And it was evident that one of the reasons why Texas and some other states in the US have been successful with fossil fuel investments is because there's separation of surface rights and mineral rights which allows more entrepreneurial investment. Does this sort of separation exist in Argentina? And if not, do you think provinces could, could, uh, could maybe start such sort of mineral rights in order to kickstart investments? I, 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 I don't, if, if I understand well your question, I don't see Argentine provinces resigning to the right to the resources. Uh, in fact, it's a constitutional mandate. Uh, so, first of all, we should uh, change the constitution. And the problem is not changing the constitution because that can be done. I, I don't think that in Argentina there's going to be a political support to having uh, all the provinces, all the federal state resigning the rights over the, the natural resources. Because now it's only about hydrocarbons. It's, it's for, for any kind of a natural resource. You, you might, I, I heard you speak very eloquently yesterday about Neuquén in particular, <laughs> and what a, I think that would be, you might want to add. Oh, well, one of the potentials that Argentina has in terms of uh, uh, the opportunity to, to, to develop the, our, our resources is that, fortunately, uh, non shale oil and shale gas resources are located in Neuquén. Neuquén from Argentina is kind of Texas for the USA. Every, everyone in Neuquén wants to produce energy. Uh, so uh, the, the best place to have these resources, in fact, is Neuquén, because, of course, there are political concerns about environmental issues, but all the citizens in Neuquén, all the population in Neuquén knows that uh, if they are able to attract investments, they will benefit in jobs, in more schools, more roads, more public investments. So this is an advantage of, of Argentina. 
the other advantage is that you can have infrastructure. You don't have to build infrastructure. The pipelines are there, and they're mostly idle. We will not use some of the pipelines. Uh, and the resource is there, so you don't have to build any, any additional. Of course, sometime, probably, we, we might build additional infrastructure, but the initial one is already in place. Gentlemen here. Good morning. My name is Michael Matera. I'm an independent consultant, but I've worked a number of years down in Argentina at the, at the embassy and also in the private sector. Christiane and all of you, thank you very much for the presentations this morning. They've been very, very useful. My question is, is for you, Christiane. Um, you have not addressed the issue of, of the high cost environment in Argentina, uh, the, the labor costs in particular. Um, I know that that's been one thing that has limited investment up until now. Um, the labor sector is also very, very conflictive uh, in, in, in Chubut in particular, in Santa Cruz. Um, you've had protests that have led to destruction of, of uh, facilities of some of the companies down there. Um, do you see this as an important issue um, or do you see it as one that will be resolved as time goes by and experience is gained, uh, both the high cost of drilling and the, the conflictive labor environment? Yes, it's an important issue, it should be resolved. Fortunately, YPF and the federal government has a good relationship with the labor unions and they are working on it. It's not going to be an easy issue to be solved, but I think that labor unions are pretty much aware that with the new scenario, the new price scenario, uh, everyone has to resign something and labor costs should be down in Argentina as uh, it's, it's, it's part of the game. Uh, you, you, you cannot pay the same salaries to some kind of uh, people in Argentina like when the barrel was at $100 or $800. Uh, yeah, I in the back, all the way. Hi, good morning. Alex Sanchez, right for Chains Defense Weekly now and then. Two questions. First of all, in, according to the 2010 census, Argentina had at the time around 40 million people. Now we, we think it has around 43 million people. It's going to reach 50 million by next decade, but for sure. Is Argentina's energy sector prepared right now? Does it, Argentina's energy sector understand that the demand is going to increase exponentially within the next decade or even less than that, by, you know, 6 million people probably? And the second question would be Russia. Uh, in April of last year, President did go to, to Moscow, sign a couple of agreements with President Putin about uh, for a nuclear energy plant and a hydro plant, hydropower plant. What President Macri has said that he will revise those agreements. What do you think is going to be the future of them? Thank you. Uh, I start by the last question. Yes, the, the government announced that going, they will review the agreement with Russia and with China. There are a couple of similar agreements with China. Right now, they are reviewing the agreement with China. Uh, I don't know when it's going to come the time to review the agreements with Russia, but the, the, the government already said that they are going to do that. In terms of demand, uh, Argentina is a small country in terms of population. Uh, so I, I, I don't see any event in, in which the demand of Argentina can grow in such a manner that uh, if we are success uh, developing the resources, we're not be able to export again. 
because the, 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 the difference between the resources that we potentially have and our potential demand in the future is, is, is tremendous. That, to give you an example, if we only succeed uh, developing half of the resources on the formation Baca Muerta, what we call, uh, the, the relation production and consumption in Argentina is going to be kind of 250 years. So there's not way that with the Argentine demand we can consume all our potential resources. The challenge here is how are we going to develop the potential resources? I wonder, could it, I mean, China has been, to a large extent, uh, a great financial backer of Argentina until, until uh, the Macri government. Is, uh, do you see that the interest of China continuing? Well, I, I, I think China needs resources uh, to, for, to, to feed their, their population. And, and clearly, uh, China has uh, a lot of interest in, in Latin America as a whole, you know, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a source of, 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 of inputs. And they will continue being interested in, in Argentina and the rest of the continent. I mean, uh, clearly, clearly, this is... This is um, this has been at least the last the, the last ten years uh, one of the big motors of, of Latin America, if you think about it. You no, know, the, the the whole uh, commodity boom, and uh, and and uh, well, right now things have slowed down a little bit. But but when when you think out um, 10, 20, 30 years, I mean, there's 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 an obvious interest in in the region uh, from someone like China. No? Yeah. Other questions, madam? Can you just hold, hold on? Oh, sorry. My name is Patricia Vázquez, and um, I am um, at the moment working on a research project on the oil industry in Argentina from a rule of law perspective. And I have two questions for you. One of them is um, you said that the development of the shale reserves will be key for ensuring Argentina's energy self-sufficiency and, um, and uh, success in the energy sector. However, at these low oil prices, uh, that may not be, at the moment, feasible. And also, the um, subsidy, subsidized prices given by the government may not be, in the long run, sustainable. I was wondering if you could give us your thoughts, maybe a couple of or two or three scenarios on how you see in this context the um, medium-term development of Baca Muerta and, and the shale resources. And the second question is uh, with regards to the rule of law. Argentina has not been um, a steady country historically in, in terms of respect for the rule of law, which is key for attracting investments, which you say is, is so important. What do you see the scenario in that regard is, or could be, what do you envision under the Macri administration? Okay. Uh, I, I think given that the oil prices or international oil prices are going to be low in the next years, I guess that Argentina should focus on developing shale gas. So. The opportunity, and the opportunity that we have is we are a country that we consume a lot of gas. 50% of our energy matrix relies on gas. We have, eventually, we have much more resources on gas than on oil in, in, in 
for non-conventional in Argentina, particularly in Neuquén. So I think that the, 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 the government should focus on natural gas, where we don't have an international price of natural gas, and, and then the import parity of the LNG is going to be very high, so that will allow any producer to sell natural gas at a very good price. Um, your second question. Uh, yes, probably one of the lessons that we have to learn as a society is that we should respect our regulatory frameworks. Uh, Norway probably has a government take that is higher than Argentina. Why they can do that? Because they have applied the same uh, regulatory framework for the last 60 years. Uh, Norway charged 78% of uh, revenues. Yeah, uh, profits. Uh, profits. Profit. Argentina only 35. Uh, so if, if, if you sum up all the government take, for instance, in Norway than in Argentina, they have a higher government take. Why Argentina cannot uh, go to the government take in, in Norway? Because we change rules almost every 10 years. Uh, in, in, in regulation, we have a, 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 a phrase say that a, a regular regulation, a pure regulation, is better than a wise regulation if, if you are changing regulation every time. Uh, the, the most important thing for a regulatory framework is the stability. No, not, not what the regulatory framework says itself. Of course, it's important what the, what the regulatory framework says, but it's much more important to preserve it along the time. Olaf, do you want to jump in? But I don't know if what? we haven't learned that lesson from, from our history. Yeah, yeah I can comment on that. We, of course, this has been, in Norway, we had, had a stable system since, uh, since the early 70s uh, with the tax system. And as you say, we have, there's a net profit tax of 78% for the companies, and in addition to that, we have the direct state ownership in some of the major fields, and we have, of course, the dividend from Statoil, so the government take is, uh, is very high. And, but, and this has been stable. We've done some adjustments over time. Over a 50 years' time, you have to do some adjustments. But as, so this, uh, there are transparent adjustments, and there are sort of um, not very many times we've done that. So it's, uh, so for me, the nation of lower is very interesting because it means an unstable regulatory framework allows the government to have a higher government mm. take. Mm. Mm -hmm. But probably discussion, a bit of the normal discussion in Latin America is the government want to have a <coughs> higher government take, so change the rules in order to have a higher government take. Mm. And this changing in the rules uh, is not well seen by foreign investors. So then finally you're reducing your government take. Mm. So it's it's the opposite. The stability of the rules, no matter the rules are perfect or, or regular, the stability in the rules is what allows the government finally to have a higher government take. I have time for one more question. This gentleman is waiting patiently. I'm Jeff Epping with Anagis LLC. Thank, thanks uh, for the discussion. I just want to drill down a little bit from uh, the prior question. Uh, one of the enabling technologies for shales is fracking. How is fracking perceived at the federal level, uh, among the population, and within the producing regions in terms of as an issue and its implementation? 
Well, it is an issue, it is a political issue, but hopefully uh, fracking right now is performing in Neuquén, where the population wants to promote this kind of activity. So I, I wouldn't say that the, 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 the issue is already solved, but it's not a big question fracking in Argentina. Uh, environment, in, environmental groups or activities are more concerned about mining than, uh, than fracking in Argentina. Look, I want to thank all of you for joining us. This has been a really great discussion about where the future is in Argentina. Big thanks to my colleague standing in the back, Thomas Corrigan, who really has been critical in helping to organize this. And thank you to all of you for joining us this morning. Again, thanks very much.